Well, welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story. Yay, he's back. Um, joining you on this 25th of June, 2022. It is literally the, you know, now a day after one of the most significant historical events in our lifetimes, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What an amazing event that has been and how insane has the fallout from this been. We will talk about that tonight. want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, praying for my buddy Rich. I know he's he's not going to do the, uh, the, the sand people uh, barking at you tonight. So to, you know, don't worry about that part, but I'm glad he's back and I'm glad he's going to be able to talk to you a bit. Uh, he, you know, just uh, always blessed to have him. I, I always feels weird when he's not here. So thank you for praying for him. Thank you for praying for his family. Uh, really just grateful. Want to remind you, as we always do, we're part of the Christian podcast community. Uh, we had one of our fellow community members on last week, Chris Huss from Matter of Theology. Want to encourage you to continue to listen to shows like his and others within the community. Uh, it's You're always going to find something great there. Always also want to remind you, check out our uh, website, slavetothekeen.com. As promised, <laughs> we've actually started to put more articles back up on the uh, the website. It's always a challenge because uh, you know when we want to put our thoughts out, it's really easy to do it on social media, and you can reach people really fast that way. But uh, the trade-off is, of course, those that commentary can disappear very quickly in a, in a flood of social media posts. So we're trying to get back to using the uh, the website and the blog to put those as a primary place to to locate what we're talking about. Of course, the trade-off to that is you don't get quite as much traffic. So we want to encourage you to get uh, you know get signed up to follow the website and get notifications when new content drops. That way you get to you know get a little bit more information about what we're thinking about and what we're wanting to put out during the week. And hopefully it's a place where you can reference you know things that we've talked about that might be helpful to you. And as always you can uh, you know, we have the our gospel presentation if you want a quick uh, way to share the gospel online, you can use you are welcome to use our uh, our post on the website slavetothekingcom slash gospel and that is one way you can help share the gospel especially in days such as these of course as we say on the website is our social media connections the means by which you can drop us a line and uh, you know get a hold of us you can always email us directly at slave to excuse me voice of reason radio at gmail.com but if you can't remember the email address go to slave to the Plug that into your bookmarks, and then you can always drop a line to us if you have thoughts, ideas for the show, concerns, questions, or even complaints. As long as you are respectful in uh, your complaint, we'll be more than happy to look look at it. Also, a reminder that that is how you, if you want to support the show in any way, our links to the various support means are there to include. If you want to buy a shirt, you know, promoting the show, you can do that. That link is there as well. So really. That's everything I always try to get out. I think I'm getting a little bit better each time at trying to keep that <laughs> narrowed down. Uh, so glad to have you back, Rich. Uh, how are you doing this week, brother? Well, as always, brother, I'm better than I deserve. But for full disclosure, I'm not fully here tonight. So um, maybe Andrew will not record <laughs> sound bites from this particular episode because I'm just I'm I'm here in spirit, but the rest of me is still not quite 100% recharged. Um, Whatever this is that I've had, um, it's just wanting to linger on and on and on. And uh, I haven't gone to the doctor over this. I do have an appointment 
this upcoming week. But my wife did go to the doctor, and they just diagnosed her with a crud, and I've had the exact same thing she's had, just a worst case of it. And um, I've improved to the point of just feeling bad and tired and weak and drained, and I still have a lingering cough and whatnot. But I wanted to thank our listeners that have reached out and, and let me know that they were praying for me and my family and to thank each one that sent me a message of encouragement and let me know that they were thinking about us because there for a while me and my wife both had it and at one point it was like neither one of us really just even felt like moving much less trying to do anything else so thankfully she's 100 percent over whatever it was that we had even though i think it was the evil c word but um <laughs> thankful that that she's completely over it because you know if our regular listeners know that she and i both are disabled and deal with various health issues and i would like to give a special thank you to chris huff for graciously filling in last week as a substitute teacher so to speak and you and you and the other chris did a wonderful job in your coverage of the sbc convention and everything that went down around that regardless irregardless of what a couple of other individuals had to reply to you in regards to it they were completely wrong but anyway i just wanted to put that out there and say thank you and thank you brother for being so patient over the last month especially when it's like a couple of weeks there it was like i waited up until the last couple of days before we were going to record just to say no nope, still not here yet no nope, still not able no nope, still coughing trying to cough up a lung and no joke that that audio that you played last week of the Tuscan Raiders, mm -hmm. the the audio sound bite from the Star Wars movie. At one point, that is what my wife told me. She said that is exactly what you sound like <laughs> when you're coughing. So um, uh, that that was maybe a little bit exaggeration, but according to my wife, not much because I mean it was some gnarly days in the last month and i just realized this is the first time in a month you and i have even actually spoke to one another much less have done a recording together we we've been texting back and forth quite a bit but this is literally the first time that we've spoken in in within a day or two of being a month i looked in the last episode we did i think was may 28th and today's oh, the 25th so so it, it has actually been a month and I don't know. It's like the last two or three weeks with a news cycle, if another podcast wants to cover just headlines, by the time they actually get to their recording date, the way the news cycle has mm -hmm. been rotating so fast, you know, two days ago, well, that's old news. You yeah. know, what's what's going on today kind of thing. Used to, the news cycle lasted a lot longer than 24 hours, and I've noticed lately Sometimes it don't even last 24 hours, stuff yes. that would have been a headline and lasted a week or a month. I mean, um, in the last two days alone, we have the overturning of Roe versus Wade and everything to do with gun control and those laws has just been barely a blip. Nothing's ever, nothing's really been mentioned about what was actually passed in regards to gun control. It's all been Roe, Roe versus Wade and our primary focus in this episode tonight is going to be to provide our listeners with some materials that they can use when discussing abortion with someone else. 
um, and also to not necessarily tell the future, but just some of our thoughts of what's going to happen in the coming months when it comes to evangelicals and the issue of abortion. Sadly, I would like to remind everyone, yes, I agree, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was tremendous. It was a very great thing. It will be great. It will save many lives. But do not concede the fight. The fight is not over. This is just the beginning. Because, and Chris, you'll break this down for us a little bit deeper later on, but at the moment, all that did was turn the issue of abortion over to the states. One statistic I saw, well, there's varying ones, but anywhere from 18 to 22 states are expected to completely end abortion over the next coming months. Several of them have already started. So out of 50 states, 20, 18 to 22, that's less than half. So that means still in over half the country, the fight over abortion is just now beginning because once it is completely rolled back down to the states and the states are starting to decide how they are going to handle the issue of abortion, now the battleground is going to be in each individual state instead of a national, on the national level. I, just want, I say that because I just want to remind everyone, abortion has not been ended. It has been somewhat diverted back to the state levels. And yes, I agree, it is great that it will be ended in some states. But if we truly care about the lives of the unborn, we will not sit quietly, we will not sit in silence until abortion is ended in every state in the United States. Amen. Now, with that being said, even if it ended in all of the United States tomorrow, you still have the rest of the world, you still have the WHO, you still have the UN that are promoting abortion as birth control in the rest of the world, especially in developing countries. Amen. And as Christians, we cannot stop proclaiming the biblical way of salvation until we pass from this earth into the next life. Because, and yes, that's what our solution is, is to proclaim the biblical way of salvation because we will never end abortion, murder, wars, starvation. We will never end anything on this earth. All we can do is proclaim the biblical way of salvation and pray that the Lord blesses our words to bring as many people as possible with us to heaven when we die. Amen. And I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little <laughs> bit, but um, my breath and my air and my lungs are working at the moment, so I'm going to just kind of <laughs> keep going until I start coughing while I can. But And Chris, you're going to cover this a little deeper later. There's a certain aspect within evangelicalism that are saying, well, if we end abortion, we've got to make sure we're taking care of that baby throughout its entire life. And we did an episode on that called the whole life woke life movement. And that is exactly what it is. It's taking the woke social gospel, applying it to the abortion issue and saying, okay, if we save this baby, we're responsible for taking care of that baby throughout the entirety of its life. We've got to put an end to world hunger. We've got to put an end to wars in this world. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Sadly, that is not what the Bible teaches. 
Jesus himself said, you will always have the poor with you. You will have wars and rumors of wars up until my return. As Christians, our battle is spiritual, it's not physical. Read the epistles. Our warfare, I think it's in Ephesians, our warfare is against spiritual principalities. We war against the flesh. We don't war against flesh with flesh. We war against the flesh in the spiritual realm with Christ, with the gospel. And we're, we're going to make a prediction. This is June. We're going to make a prediction about what's going to transpire within evangelicalism over the next few months and what you're going to see happen. Um, but getting started, we're going to provide some statistics that we hope is beneficial to you as a listener if you're in a discussion with someone in regards to abortion. We originally had something else planned for the discussion tonight, but I'm not quite 100% yet, so I told Chris, let's do something easier, let's cover abortion, if that gives you any idea, you know, because abortion is such an easy light issue. So they're just kind of a small teaser for hopefully next week's show. But... I learned during some research over the last few days some of the numbers and some of the things you see quoted by the pro-choice crowd when it comes to abortion. Um, one thing I saw was that anywhere from 18 to 24 percent of abortions are due or a result of incest or rape. And I got to looking into some of these statistics. The first thing I want to recommend to you, listener, is that if someone goes to spouting statistics or facts or numbers, the first thing you need to ask them is this. Okay, are those numbers and statistics, are they based off of U.S., United States no, statistical data? Are they based off of the U.S. only? Are they based on global statistics or are they based on a region, regional specific statistic? Looking up that number, depending on what country or continent you pull those statistics from, and depending on whether you're pulling them from the WHO or UN or another institute that covers global statistics, those numbers are right from a certain point of view. If you're going to take and say 20% of all abortions are a result of rape, okay, yes, that's true from a global perspective, from the statistical data as it applies to the continent of Africa. When you take that and break it down and look at the statistical data from the United States, that number drops to less than 1%, meaning less than 1% of all abortions in the United States are a result of rape. When it comes to incest, those numbers are all over the place. But when it comes to cases of incest in the United States, it is less than half a percent. So when someone says that 20, 24% of all abortions are a result of rape, they're, they're being truthful to a degree. But you need to ask, okay, what area is those statistics based from? Are you talking global, regional, or the United States? And that's something that I've learned over the last few days that's, that's critical when you're just in a discussion with someone over abortion because me and my family have had this discussion with each 
each other and some other family members over abortion. And I'm sad to say one portion of my family is pro-abortion, is pro-choice. They think, you know, that's women's right and all the bandwagon rhetoric that goes along with it. Some of this, some of this tonight is resulting from some conversations I've had myself because I was quoted some of these statistics and I got to looking them up and I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. That number is true, but that's based on global statistics. It's not based on the United States. So I just want everyone to keep that in mind. And I think that could be very helpful as you discuss the issue of abortion with some of these individuals that, you know, are throwing out some very wild and weird numbers. Um, I saw it asked online within some mine and Chris's realm of influence and some people we follow in common. There was a question posed as to how many in the United States, how many couples use abortion as birth control or how many couples, married couples, I need to specify that because there's a difference between couples and married couples. Sadly, we have to make that distinction in today's post-moral world. But there was a thing posted about wondering how many married couples go to go to a clinic to have an abortion. And I've seen numbers anywhere from 14, 15, 20%. But according to the Guttmacher Institute, the CDC and several other websites among married women in 2019, 4% of all abortions were, were carried out on married women, 4%. Now granted 4% does not sound like that much, but when you count the number of abortions that occurred in the United States in that one particular, particular year, if the number is more than one, or if the number is more than zero, really, that's one too many. But just to kind of put some of these things into the proper context and proper perspective, because especially over the last couple of days, I've seen numbers all over the place when it comes to some of these things. And Chris will have the link to this particular website in the show notes. It's from abort73.com, and they have tons. If you like statistics, they have tons of statistics from the Guttmacher Institute, the CDC, all these other different entities that track all these particular types of things. But one one thing I noticed looking at this these statistics and looking at some others that go back to like 1990 through now, one one thing you can see a pattern that stays constant regardless of whether we're talking 2004, 2019, 2021. One statistic stays the same. The majority of majority the majority of abortions are by women that are from the, between the ages of 20 and 29. And guess what race, quote-unquote, race they are. In 2019, 10% of abortions were performed on white women. 28% were on black women. And this is from the CDC, you know, that... that Follow the science. Centers for Disease. Yeah, Follow the Science Centers for Disease Control that everyone loves so much when they're trying to to justify COVID and the vaccines and everything else. This is from the CDC. And they this is a report from, from the CDC in 2019. It states black women were more than 3.6 times more likely to have an abortion in 2019 than white women. 3.6 times more likely. 
than white women. That goes back to the 28% of abortions in 2019 were performed on black women and only 10% on white women. The abortion rate for those with, for women that had Medicaid coverage is three times more likely if a woman is on Medicaid, she's three times more likely to have an abortion than someone that's on private insurance. Mm -hmm. And this last statistic, there's more on here, and I think there was a few Chris wanted to share, but there's one statistic. This in, this one is based on 2014, and this number should be zero. But 30% of aborting women identified themselves as Protestant in 2014. 30% of the women that had an abortion in the year 2014 identified themselves as Protestant, as Protestant. 24% identified as Catholic. But think about that. 30% of women having an abortion in 2014 identified themselves as Protestant. And I think that number is probably greater now than it was then, given the rhetoric we see by some of those within the American evangelical circles that are trying to take a woke stance on abortion and trying to ride the fence rail when it comes to whether an abortion should be allowed or not, or exception clauses should be thrown in there, or, you know, well, we can only end abortion if we're willing to take care of this baby the rest of its life. All these different caveats that are part of the social gospel that they're adhering and embracing not only when it comes to easy believism and recite this prayer or I invite you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior type rhetoric when it comes to the way they proclaim the gospel, which the way they proclaim it is not the biblical way of salvation because nowhere in the Bible do you ever see Paul talking about, I invite you to receive Christ. No, it's a command Repent and believe, or else you too shall perish. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself again. But when it comes to abortion and abortion-related facts, you need to be educated because, sadly, whether you're pro-choice, pro-life, pro-criminalize all abortion, there are hard facts and figures out there that are available. And if we are trying to end abortion and we want to see people saved, and we want to have these discussions, we need to know the hard facts ourselves in order to be able to correct other individuals and let them know, well, your, your numbers may be quoting global statistics, but we're talking about abortion in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the issues that I see people are failing in when it comes to the current talks about abortion and Roe versus Wade is that we're talking about ending abortion in the United States. We're not talking about ending it in the world, which we need to have that conversation, but whether we're trying to end it worldwide or just end it in our own country, there's still only one answer, and that is proclaiming the biblical way of salvation. Because even if we criminalized abortion tomorrow and every abortion provider was arrested and put in jail, because the reason why women are seeking abortion still has not been addressed. The sexual immorality that is rampant in this country has not been addressed. Mm -hmm. I think we should criminalize abortion 
criminalize the abortion providers and criminalize pornography and the mm-hmm. porn industry as a whole and get rid of all of it. It won't do anything to change this generation, but the generations after us would be far better off than being raised in a country filled with sexual perversion like we see running rampant today. And if uh, evangelicals think that the Rick Warren model for building churches is solid, if it has really worked, look at the landscape of America today, and you look across and you tell me, is America more moral or less moral than it was 20 years ago when the purpose-driven life was written. It is far more wicked, it's far more depraved, and it is far more enamored with sexual immorality today than it was 20 years ago. Amen. So if, if his results were so great, if he's doing such a great job, why are we not seeing more Americans obeying the Word of God instead of obeying their own lust and their own flesh and their own sensuality? Put that in. Put that in your little notebook, Rick Warren. Go to the scriptures. Open up the book, because we have a book, and God's word is written plainly in black and white as to what is and what is not a sin, and how we are and how to conduct ourselves when it comes to worship and representing the God, the one true God, Jesus Christ Almighty. I ask you, listener, is America better off today? than it was 20 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, we would not thought it possible. We would even have to be discussion, discussing professing Christians supporting abortion, professing Christians supporting homosexuality, professing Christians supporting same-sex marriage, professing Christians discussing whether it's okay for little children to sit in a drag queen story hour or go to a pride parade with every type of perversion imaginable that Paul spoke against. And I've posted this several times over the last week. Either all of God's word is true or none of it is. We don't have the authority. We don't have the lib- the liberality to d- pick and choose and decide what in God's word is truth and what is not. What is not. We either believe all of it or we believe none of it. It's time for American evangelicals to quit trying to play Burger King with the Bible and say, well, I'll take a little of this and a little of that, hold the onions, hold the pickles, hold the tomatoes, hold this portion, hold this verse, hold that verse. I don't really think that applies to me. I don't like that, so let's throw that out. No, we don't have the liberty to do that, people. Amen. It's either all of God's Word is true or none of it's true. Amen. Now, I'll shut up, sit down, step down <laughs> off my soapbox. I guess I just needed to get some of that out because I haven't been able to talk for a month. But anyway... I'll give it back to you, Chris, and I know that there's probably things you want to go back over, and I think there was probably some other statistics you wanted to touch on before we got any further in tonight's episode. No, absolutely. And first and foremost, I just want to say that uh, what you what you put out there is it's absolutely essential because I think there's a lot of times where we are we are inclined to fall into you know okay. This number, that uh, that number, you know, you know that number. That wow, I I really not real sure of, um, you know, really not sure about, you know, should I be taking such a strong stance on this issue because wow, there's all these people, you know, that, you know, that I can't really, uh, ha- I don't really have an answer for, and um, you know, I don't know if I should really speak to to this issue or not. So, you know, that we tend to do to get you know tripped up. Those statistics end up helping us seeing the reality and what the picture looks like. 
and because of some of the arguments which tend to be along the lines of hey we need to address this through a social justice you know welfare uh, provision type of uh, response and that's how we're going to solve this issue which is what we're going to talk about in Italy here in just a second I just want to point something out the abort 73 article that rich was referring to um, by the way, this article, they do keep updated. The, the page was last updated June 23rd, 2022, so literally just two days ago. So they keep these statistics up to date as best they're, as they're able, obviously. Um, one of the things I found interesting in this article is that, um, they cite in a sub uh, section called Why Do, Why do abortion, Abortions Occur? In 2004, Guttmacher Institute did an anonymous survey of 1,209 post-abortive women. Nine different clinics across the country. So this is a pretty wide range. Um, of the women surveyed, 957 provided a main reason for having an abortion. And let me just give you the statistics. So they did this widespread across the country, tried to get a good sample size of why people, why women were having abortions. The one that we're always told about, the the exception rule, like, you know, rape and incest, victim of rape, less than one half of 1%, less than one half of 1%. This is again, 2004. Fetal health problems, 3%. Physical health problems, I believe for the mother, 4%. These are, now, I, every one of those are concerning and I understand why people want to make say there's a reason for an exception here. The simple fact is, though, you don't murder someone because of how they were conceived, nor do you murder them because they might they may have health issues. And you you know just when a person when a woman has physical health issues, that doesn't mean that the first answer should be murder. Okay, we need to keep that in mind. But I want to paint that picture. We are trying to say all these exceptions need to be here because of all this concern about these issues. They are some of the small, we're talking less than 7.5% of the women surveyed gave those reasons. And these are the ones that typically are run to as the big reason why abortion should be kept legal. 4% would, in, would interfere with education or career. 7% not mature enough to raise a child. 8% do not, don't want to be a single mother. This is the one I found where I found them interesting. 19% done having children. 19%. I don't want any more kids. 23% can't afford a baby. That's important because we're going to talk about that issue in just a second. 25%. I'm not ready for a child. So 67% of the women surveyed said either because they were done having children, they didn't want to, or they didn't feel they were ready for a child, or they just felt they couldn't afford it. 67%. That's the majority in 2004. Now, state of Florida in this same section says that they record abortion, every reason for abortions. And in 2020, they had recorded 74,868 abortions in the state of Florida. Less than point, or excuse me, 0.01% pregnancy was result from an incestuous relationship. 0.15% woman the woman was raped so 0.16 percent in the state of florida in 2020 was a result of rape or incest 0.20 percent woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy 
0.98%, less than 1%, there was a serious fatal, a fetal abnormality. These are all less than 1%. These are the ones we're being told we have to keep abortion legal for. 1.48%, woman's physical health was threatened by a pregnancy. 1.88%, woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. Less than 2% on these. 20.4%, the woman aborted for social or economic reasons. 74.9%, no reason, elective. In other words, they, they, they had their own justifiable reasons. So nearly 75% of abortions in the state of Florida in 2020 were for elective reasons. In almost every case outside of elective, and outside of social or economic reasons, it was less than 2%. These are the numbers that they want to quote you. That's why Rich, Rich's point to where are these numbers coming from is so important. Because if you make your sample size of a certain amount or from a certain area, you can play all kinds of statistics. This is Guttmacher Institute. This is not some sort of Christian you know, program trying to find a way to... Uh, justify getting rid of abortion. This is this is they're tracking it. Okay, this is from Guttmacher Institute Centers for Disease Control. These are, you know, outside institutions tracking this stuff. This is exactly what we're actually seeing, and what has been the argument of people who are abolitionists and pro-life for years, that the vast majority of abortions of murder of an infant in the womb is for elective reasons, and the, the exception clauses are so small, so, by perspective, so the, the minority of what happens, why people seek an abortion, so as to, they don't make a statistical reason for keeping this law, or keeping this abominable procedure legal, okay? Keep that in mind. That is your perspective. And again, we'll put that abort 73 uh, back uh, in the show notes. And um, let me grab this. Oops. I think I pushed that up too high. Sorry, for, folks. I'm trying to get my brother Rich back in here. Yeah, go ahead, Rich. Well, I just wanted to point out, since you were on that particular point about the exception clauses, this was an article, article from USA Today. And it was addressing, well, this goes back to some previous debates within certain states over abortion. But it was quoting a Mary Ziegler, a professor at Florida State University College of Law, who specializes in the legal history of reproduction. <laughs> when it comes to the exception clauses, she stated, in, she stated exceptions for rape and incest are much more symbolic than they are relevant given that they don't apply to the majority of women having abortions. That statement was just substantiated by all the statistics mm -hmm. that you and I both quoted. It is a talking point when it comes to the pro-abort crowds because they try to say, well, you can't really be okay with you, you've got to support abortion in the case of rape and incest because that was such a horrible event, such a horrible thing 
for that woman to go through or, or for them to have to endure. Yes, it is, but it is not the main cause of abortion like so many try to paint it off to be. And anytime you hear, well, I'm, I'm against abortion except for the cases of rape or incest, what you're really saying is I'm okay with that child being murdered in the womb for the sins of the father. Yes. So instead of trying to heal and bring consulting, or not consulting, but consolation to this individual that has suffered a traumatic, traumatic event, let's just add another traumatic event to this person's life, something else they're going to have to feel guilt-ridden for for the rest of their life. Yeah. You know, they're already going to have psychological impact and, and suffering because of the event that happened to them. So let's just add to it and now make them feel guilty over murder. Yeah. Because, and then that's where you hear all these coming back. Well, we shouldn't be trying to convict women for abortion because they were victims themselves. Well, there's not as many of them out there that are truly victims that you as you would like to paint the picture of it being. What you're really saying is you're wanting to take a wishy-washy stance on abortion and throw that exception clause in there just to pander to the other side and to make people feel better about supporting abortion because in in truth and reality and hard statistical data abortions result um, pregnancies resulting from rape or incest by secular opinions and secular statistics are only roughly one percent of all the abortions in the united states yeah that's not a christian website stating that that is your own secular theoretical websites that do nothing but analyze data. That is them telling you that, yes. pro-choicer. They are the ones stating this, not a Christian website. Yes, I, I agree that depending on who's, which side of an argument you're on, you can take data and manipulate it to suit your own agenda. Guess what? This data is coming from those that support secularism, that support societal views, that support culture that support all the things that you support. There's nothing Christian about them. But guess what? Even they are saying that in the cases of rape and incest, pregnancies from you know, abortions resulting from that are less than 1%. Now, granted, I will say this. 1% is 1% more than it should be. But there's no excuse for a death sentence on an unborn child resulting from the sin and crime of someone else. If you want to do something productive, castrate the rapist. Castrate mm -hmm. the family member that raped their other family member. That would do far more to send a message and prevent those type of things than all these other ways and, and things that people go about trying to do. But you should never murder an unborn child for the crimes of the father. Amen. That's in the Bible, yep. and that is in society. If you shoot a pregnant woman in most states, you're going to be charged with dull homicide. Even these huge, tremendous pro-choice states, that is still double murder. So either that baby in the wound is a, is a, is a person with the rights as every other individual, or there are, or it has no rights at all. How can on the one on the one hand, how can you say, well, that unborn child has no rights, and then on the other hand, in the same state, 
charge someone for murder for killing a pregnant woman. Amen. The logic does, does not track. Am I wrong or am I right, brother? No, you're, you're spot on. And, and you're absolutely correct. Scripture is very clear. You go to Ezekiel uh, 18, verses uh, 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should not the why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, the fa nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteousness, righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. God Himself will not. You know, uh, put the sins of the father on the son. So the child in the womb has not sinned, and it, while while the you know, child in the womb is conceived in sin, and it, when born, will have a sinful heart that it will act out upon, for which he or she will have to answer for. In the womb, the son the, that child is not yet sinned. Therefore, there is no reason for that child to bear the iniquity of of sin. And therefore, that child should not bear the iniquity of how he or she was conceived. Therefore, it is a unbiblical and sinful concept to be able to say that we should murder the child for the sins of its father. I absolutely agree with you. You're 100% correct. So I will add okay. this. I'm, I'm sorry. I want to add this, though, because I think this is very important. As a Christian, if you are saying abortion should be ended except in the case of rape of incest, what you're doing, you're telling a pregnant woman that has suffered from rape, you're telling her it is okay to sin because someone else sinned against her. Amen. You know what that is referenced to? When Jesus said, in the world temptations will come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. By telling that woman it's okay to have an abortion because she was raped, you're leading that woman into sin, and you will be held accountable for that sin as much as that woman who chooses to murder her unborn baby will be held accountable. Amen. Now, when it comes to people saying, well, women shouldn't be locked up for having an abortion, my question is, when you hear a professing Christian make a statement like that, ask them, well, would you support criminalizing, would you support arresting the abortion provider if they say no that speaks volumes more so about where they truly stand than it does about the individual woman because i've asked some pastors this leading up to the sbc convention i actually asked both presidential candidates that exact same question one responded and said of course they should be arrested the other one all i got was crickets yeah but to me that is a far more revealing question than discussing whether a woman should be arrested for having an abortion. My question is, and my suggestion is, ask, ask that individual, well, should the abortion provider be arrested and put in jail for providing the means of murdering someone? If I'm going to go out and hire a contracted killer, or if I'm going to hire someone to rob out somebody else, guess what? That person is going to be arrested, and so am I. And in the case of abortion, that's what they're doing. Women are contract killers against their unborn babies. They're paying someone else to murder their unborn child. And, the, and the sad truth is, is that there are many Christians who will say, yes, the abortion provider should be arrested, but then that 
it reveals an inconsistent view as well. You say that it's murder, that uh, you want the person who performed the procedure to, to be held accountable, but you do not want to hold the one who contracted that pr procedure to be done to be held accountable. It's an inconsistent view which reveals how we have so equivocated on this position. And the simple fact is it goes back to what we actually believe about abortion and why it happens, which is where we kind of want to go next on this. And since Roe was over announced overturned yesterday, um, it, the response in the evangelical community has been interesting, to say the least. When you look at most people who would listen to this program, most of us rejoiced. I, I literally had did not believe in my lifetime I when the leak happened which by the way I wonder why we haven't heard who the leaker was that's that's interesting anyway separate issue <laughs> um, when that information was leaked and there was not an immediate response by the uh, Supreme Court to release the decision there was great concern at least in my own heart as we watched the Department of Justice and every other law enforcement agency and political leader punt and do nothing to protect the Supreme Court justices homes and families there was part of me that said this could go the other way this is what they wanted we we know that what they wanted to have happen was to see the uh, Supreme Court justices panic and pull back that's what this was all about and so what, what did we what do we end up seeing? We end up seeing this push harder and harder, the, these protests, these uh, you know these violent threats, up to and including an attempt on a sitting justice's life, which by God's grace never happened. So I never thought this would actually come to fruition. I began to wonder as we got closer and closer to the end of June, would we ever hear an announcement, or did that was there so much back and forth on this that they were not going to rule against it? And that it was going to be some sort of kind of punt where they sort of pseudo said it was bad, but they kicked it back to that particular state or something. Um, what came out was an absolute resounding, uh, you know, resounding kick in the shins to the original decision of, of Roe v. Wade. Which, by the way, just to, to you know to clarify, this was decided back in January twenty second of seventy three. It was a seven to two decision. Um, I, you can go to Wikipedia and pull this the information up. It's easy to find. Uh, they basically ruled uh, that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which if you're not sure what the 14th Amendment is, Section 1 says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. In other words, you can't pass a law that abridges the, you know, or, or, or can, you know, kind of cancels out those privileges of being a citizen, your rights. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. So basically, as a citizen, the, uh, the, the, the nation cannot pass laws that infringe upon your rights without due process. So what they've said in Roe v. Wade was, well, this this basically provides a fundamental right to privacy. In other words, this is that what happens in that doctor's office is private. You can't interrupt that without due process, and therefore a woman has a right to an abortion. Although interestingly, they uh, they also determined that the right to abortion was not absolute, and they basically developed a trimester. Uh, uh, tiered 
way of dealing with it. In other words, in the first trimester, you couldn't regulate it at all. In the second trimester, you could regulate the procedure, uh, uh, but only for the purpose of protecting maternal health, not for the protecting protection of fetal life. And uh, finally, the um, the uh, third trimester was basically you could you could even uh, prohibit you know third trimester abortion. So even even in their decision, they didn't say you know from conception to you know just before birth they had a tiered way of responding to it and that's been upheld in, in certain places uh, there was a decision in 92 where they uh, kind of went from a strict scrutiny standard to more of a undue burden test but it was this decision in uh, just yesterday where they uh, the supreme court ruled that the constitution does not confer a right to abortion and that the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. In other words, they, they've ruled that the original decision in 1973 is that this is wrong. The, the, the due process clause doesn't actually establish a right to abortion. You know, they, that they determined that that, you know, that original decision was flawed. It was bad. It, wasn't, it had no uh, viable standard for, for ruling that. And interestingly since 1973 there's never been a codification of the the of abortion as a legal protected uh or, or as being protected by law so it's always been decided by precedent you know the 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 supreme court said well no you can't have it so every state basically said okay we can we can only regulate it in these ways based on this tiered process and that's what they've done so there's never been a law this is why when uh, Joe Biden was running for president, his big push was to codify Roe. He wanted it in uh, in federal st statute so that if the Supreme Court tried to rule against it, we had a law that said, too bad, it's it's law. It's now law. You're, you're not where uh, the, the federal government has determined it is protected. Therefore, you can't uh, you can't regulate abortion. That's they've tried to push for that. They failed. Now, that's what's going to be, by the way, this is why the midterm uh, elections are going to be massively important. Just a side note here, the midterm elections just became massively more important than they've ever been before. Why? Because you have, uh, you're going to have another push to codify Roe federally. If, we, if, if the Democrats maintain Congress, if they get a hold of Congress, it's going through. It's not, you can guarantee it's going to go through. If they get also get control of uh, the Senate, they're going to pack the court. They're going to expand it and they're going to pack it. And what we have right now is gone. Your midterm election just became extremely, extremely important. Okay, so getting back on track. So this is kind of the history of how we got here. Now we have evangelicals who have mixed responses. Many of us rejoicing, recognizing that Roe was terrible judicial precedent and it took it established something that it claimed that there was something in the constitution that didn't exist that and what's happened now is you have the you know the culture at large saying they've ripped out a right from the constitution no it was never there there was never a right to murder your child in the constitution the supreme court recognizes this recognizes the road decision was bad has reversed it and returned it back to the states there's not a fundamental right to privacy on murdering your child that's just what it boils down to. Now, Christians, those in our circles recognize the fight's not over. 
Okay, you know, you're going to have a lot of states that are going to codify or have already codified abortion as a right, and therefore cannot be um, cannot be put. Uh, there won't be an end put to it in that state. So, for example, in my state of Nevada, our governor, heaven help us, you know, basically proclaimed he was going to protect that right. And he's going to run on that. I guarantee you, in this upcoming election. Many other states, California, uh, Governor you know, Pritzker in Illinois, everybody putting out these statements how they're going to fight for, to protect the women's right to an abortion. So that's being said in the general public. We at the, at the, here in the church recognize the fight's not over and there's much more to be done. And as my brother Rich pointed out, really the only way that's ever truly going to ha happen is through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel because hearts saved and freed from sin desire to be obedient to God and well funny thing when you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you wanting to kill a fellow image bearer is suddenly less of a temptation so if you want to see that change the primary way we go about that is the preaching and teaching of the gospel and calling people to repentance in Christ but the fight's not over we have much more to do this is where the other side of evangelicalism has had a very tempered response and I read two articles that I, I actually put out responses to uh, on our website on Slave to the King, one of which I wrote today but I wrote two articles that I would lo love you to take a look at. The first was when Roe was announced talking about the fact that it was overturned what is what that's going to be and what cannot happen and then that bleeds over into my article today which addresses two uh, two articles written by one by Karen Swallow Pryor and one by David French, and in my you know, in the first article titled "Is Roe uh, Is Roe the End?" I point out that we should not adopt the language of our of the culture, the language of the world about how we deal with uh, abortion. Remember, abort we commit abortion killing a child in the womb is a sin. It's murder. Why do we sin? Not because of circumstances. We sin because we're sinners at heart. We are enslaved to sin. That's why abortion happens. It's why you know, domestic abuse happens. It's why sexual sin happens. It's why theft happens. You can, you can spend all day, every day, giving a thousand reasons why someone did something. But ultimately, the reason they acted in a sinful manner is because they are sinners at heart. And apart from Christ they're going to continue to do those things. So we can't remove the guilt of sin by saying that life was unfair or difficult or there were these circumstances that pushed someone in a certain direction. Sin is still sin. And so we cannot fall prey to the language of the world. We need, we need to remember our primary mission, which is to preach the gospel. And so the article I, I released today, and both of these are very short, take you just a couple minutes to read. I wanted to address what happened with certain segments of the evangelical, uh, you know, professing evangelical church and where this is going. And I think uh, uh, a friend of ours, Josh Dawes, who has the Great Awakening podcast, wrote this earlier today on Twitter. He said, regime evangelicals, that's, that, I like Josh's terminology. Josh says, evangelical elites is probably not really a great term because we, we can kind of put people who are in that kind of upper echelon who actually are uh, more on our side in that and, and kind of classify them in that same um, 
in that same group, and that's not fair to them. He refers to those that we call maybe Big Eva or something, regime evangelicals, those who are uh, concerned about keeping their authority and power, their regime within the Christian church. like that term, Josh. I might use that more. Um, he says, regime evangelicals in November. Now that Roe is settled, Christians are free and really have an obligation to vote for Democrats to demonstrate our concern for women and begin the process of reparations to alleviate the hardship we've thrust upon them. Josh, I know you're not a prophet and you don't play the son of a prophet on TV, but man, they, I guarantee you that's going to be the uh, the battle cry of those regime evangelicals. And I can tell you that because of the two articles that came out in the last 24 hours. One was by Karen Swallow Pryor on, uh, in the New York Times titled, I Prayed and Protested to End Row, What Comes Next? In this article, she first thing that she does that really disturbs me is she states, Roe v. Wade's uh, reversal has elicited cries of anger and despair from those who feel a sense of dread for the future of women and the future of America. I understand that feeling of dread. Now, her next line gives clarification, but that's a horrifying thing to say. Could you? I, I think it was Tom Buck that shared this today. He says, could you imagine if it said, if that was to say, uh, like the you know, reversing the Dred Scott decision had elicited cries of anger and despair from slaveholders fearing for the future. Could and, and then to say, I feel that, I understand that feeling of dread. Could you imagine that? We would never say that as Christians. Yet Karen Swallow Pryor says that. Now she tries to clarify that. She says, as a pro-life advocate, I lament with those who feel they have lost a basic human right. Again, terrifying statement as well as moral agency and the hope for the future. But for me, it is Roe that brought up the uh, brought these lice, uh, losses. And she's basically saying that Roe stripped those rights from prenatal children. Okay, I get what she's saying. That kind of association, wholly inappropriate. Uh, it, put it in any other context. T- talk about slaveholders, talk about rape. Any other context, she would. Uh, this would be entirely inappropriate language, and yet she's able to get away with it. But in this article... She makes the case that there has to be, that we have to basically figure out why abortions happen and how are we going to to help that situation and how are we going to help make abortions unthinkable and unnecessary. And what she argues for is essentially that, you know, that the we have to give uh, social and financial provisions to those individuals who are facing pregnancy and they don't have the resources. Okay, so this is what she's arguing for. And uh, she put, uh, she says to the, uh, the, to the bottom of the article here, since Roe, our culture has increasingly come to understand that it's not merely our bodies ourselves, but also our communities ourselves. Our bodies live and move among other bodies, whether for good or ill. We are our brothers and sisters keepers, and it does take a village to become whom we are. So she's basically saying it's the village's responsibility to help these individuals. Um, and she talks about how, uh, you know, she refers to an, a, 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 um, a Times opinion essay by Patrick Brown, who says there needs to be a broader vision of policy than just prohibiting access to abortion. He wrote, it is a one that compels a greater claim on public resources to support expectant mothers. Now, 
lest anyone say, well, you know, she's probably not really saying that we need to have, uh, you know, the uh, government provide financially. Let me catch something for, show you something here. Uh, Gabe Hughes pr uh, showed this, on, uh, shared this on Twitter. It's a screenshot because she deleted the tweet. And Tom Askell also shared this. Uh, he, he, he refers to it saying that, so Karen is saying that now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, we should steal uh, from people and redistribute what is stolen to pregnant moms. Am I understanding this correctly? Is this what they say, what they mean about saying the quiet part out loud? The screenshot is from somebody on Twitter by the name of John Piper's Seashell Collection. And he's retweeting Karen's article. And his response to this is, this will never happen on some levels unless the vast majority of pro-lifers who are mostly fiscal conservatives support taxing the ever-loving blank out of the rich and unapologetically redistributing the money to pregnant moms and not relying on private charities alone. So without being incendiary as this individual was he's basically saying the only way that what karen has written will happen is if we tax the living daylights out of the rich take that money and give it to the mothers karen's deleted tweet which has been captured via a screenshot is to say exactly and then share the link to her article karen is exactly saying we need to tax americans at a higher rate and use that to provide for expectant mothers who may be, you know, terrified about being able to, you know, provide for children or raise them in this uh, in this world. And by the way, remember, Guttmacher Institute uh, you know, survey: only 23% of those individuals who had uh, that they surveyed in 2004 said it had anything to do with money. Rich, did you have a thought here? Well, back backtrack in just a moment. First. Her quote about it takes a village. Yeah. It just dawned on me. She was almost speaking verbatim from Hillary Clinton's mm -hmm. rhetoric a few years ago about about takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. I mean, that was almost verbatim. But backtracking a little bit further, when she said something about brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. did I hear that correctly, or was she implying that? everyone is a brother or sister or was she specifically talking about those who profess christ who get pregnant i think she's because that's a huge caveat i think what she's trying to do is stealing the line from cain and my am i my brother's keeper she's saying that you know it the it, it we aren't individualistic she actually you know kind of refers to that in the, in the article one of the problems is that because America America is rugged individualism, it's been an obstacle to solving these problems. She's saying, we're not individuals. We're a community of people. And therefore, we are each other's keepers. So brother and sister isn't so much ref being referred to in the biblical sense uh, that we are brethren in Christ, but rather, well, we we are responsible for one another. They're just like, you know, in, in again, stealing that line from, Cain, uh, when he killed Abel, am I my brother's keeper? Well, well she's saying, well, is, yes, actually, you are. <laughs> well, the problem is whether she was speaking from a biblical perspective, which she should have been doing, considering her quote unquote status within the evangelical regime, um, she's still convoluting neighbor with brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Bible does have specific teachings about treating our neighbor and being kind, and mm -hmm. if we have ex extra to provide for them if they're starving or hungry, and things along these lines. 
but it also makes a complete distinction between a neighbor and a brother and sister. And it even goes so far as to say that our primary responsibility is actually to care for those who are within the faith first prior to providing relief to those outside of the faith. Yeah. I don't have the verses right in front of me, but it's very specific when it talks about providing for those within our household first. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, she's missing missing the point altogether. Mm-hmm. If a person, an individual or a couple, and sadly we have to make that distinction today because God's Word has a solution for all of these problems. It's one man, one, mar- one man, one woman marriage, and sex is to be confined as a blessing mm-hmm. to the matrimony bed, meaning that sex is meant for a man and woman in the bonds of holy matrimony, and that is the only permissible clause for sexual relations, period. Mm-hmm. So she's missing that point altogether. And, and sadly, in today's world, couples living together and people having sex outside of marriage has become normative within the professing church to the point to where now we're trying to provide for people living in sin, practicing sin, hating God. We want to make sure that they're warm, comfortable, and well-fed in their sin. But nobody is making the fact, pointing out the fact that even outside of Christ, if you cannot afford to have a child and raise a child, guess what? You can't afford to be engaged in sexual activity. And everything else aside, there are other, there are actual true forms of birth control available, almost free everywhere that can be utilized and not have to have an abortion. It doesn't require, okay, you're wanting to be sexually promiscuous. All right, we're going to make sure you have funds available in case you're not responsible enough to take care of of birth control. We're going to provide for you in case you get pregnant, and we're going to leave you in your sin, and we're going to pay you, and we're going to give you money. Guess what? The government's been doing that for decades. It's called welfare, period. Yeah. Well, I I want to... I absolutely agree with all of that. So I want to also address uh, David French's article because that what you discussed, some of that is touched on with uh, has application what he talks about here. David French, who is a diehard never Trumper and takes no doesn't even think twice about using every article he writes to slap anybody who voted for Trump in the face, celebrated the you know the overturning of Roe v. Wade and then promptly tried to ignore the fact that the reason those individuals uh, who are on the Supreme Court that helped overturn it, three of them were justices that were appointed by Trump. Interesting. Um, He writes an article that almost echoes exactly what Karen Swallow Pryor wrote in hers, which is an arguing for government intervention in providing for those who are facing unwanted pregnancies. He actually goes back and, and argues in, in the, the lower half of his article, doing so as a matter of both better policy and pers- per- personal conduct. Excuse me, better policy is embodied, embodied by Mitt Romney's proposed Family Security Act, which provide which would provide most American families with monthly financial assistance even when a child is still in the womb. In other words, government give me money. 
Parents of <clears throat> young, they already do that. <laughs> parents of young children would receive three hundred and fifty a month per child. Parents of older children would receive two hundred and fifty a month per child. Pregnant women could receive up to four seven hundred dollar payments, one for each of the last four months of pregnancy. This is a fight. This is his argument that we need to have policy that the government provides financially that he says the Romney plan isn't the answer to child poverty and family financial insecurity, but it is an answer and it's concrete financial support for mothers and children would be a tangible statement of our nation's moral commitment to young families. So, all right, go ahead. Uh, I'd like to point out something at this moment with everything that you just said, think back to what we said at the beginning of this show. Who is most likely to get an abortion? People that are quote-unquote black. Black minority women are 3.8 times more likely to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. Women of all quote-unquote races at or below the poverty level are more likely to have an abortion than those that are above the poverty level. And I meant to quote that. I think it's in that those statistics are in that link but in essence that is the democratic welfare state platform from the 70s and 80s Mm -hmm. and guess what who is it that the democrats are always trying to pander to when it comes to election time minorities Mm -hmm. that has been their bread and butter for decades is Okay, it's time for election. We've got to get all these black votes. All right, we got all these black votes, and then we'll just forget about it. Yep. Has that not been a pattern for decades? Absolutely. And based on those abortion statistics, what demograph are they targeting with this type of rhetoric? And I will like to go ahead and add and say this for those that don't know. Welfare varies from state to state. But if you meet the criteria of being in a financial hardship, guess what? The government already does help these individuals. Mm-hmm. This just expands the payout in cash, and all these states that have fought so hard for welfare reform, that have fought so hard to try to get dependent people off of welfare and get them jobs and get them back to work, all of this is doing is trying to enable those individuals once more. Yes, there are people out there who truly are not either educated or, or physically able to work or able to, you know, work and be pregnant and, and be at home and, you know, all these different variables. Yes, I understand. I get that. But sadly, anytime, if you look throughout history, when it comes to welfare and, and just writing checks, you know, at one point in, the, in, in one particular state that I lived in, every kid that you had, that you could count if you met if your income was below a certain level you got a check of any anywhere from two to three hundred fifty dollars a month per kid and i know for a fact there were individuals that had 10 or 12 kids just to get those checks there were individuals that counted their neighbor's kids to get those checks yeah and and, don't and there's all oh, go ahead i was just going to say even if good intentions are at work here it never ends well when, when it comes to just throwing money at a problem, when it comes to just handing money out left and right. It never ends well for those individuals because once you get them basically hooked on 
the drug of money, once you get them hooked and they're expecting that to keep coming in, whenever it's cut off, they pitch a hissy fit. Mm -hmm. And once you get someone dependent on a welfare state, the economic success of that particular state will decline because you have people that are not willing to go to work as we saw with COVID Mm -hmm. because they're making more money at home than they would make if they actually went to work. Exactly. And going back to what you were, when you were citing statistics earlier on abort 73, the article points to uh, the national abortion federation. I think is what it is national. Let me find it again. Make sure I'm saying this right. Yeah. National abortion federation. If you have Medicaid, you are three times more likely to have an abortion. It says the abortion rate of women with Medicaid coverage is three times as high as that of other women. So government provided insurance. That's interesting. So we're we're being told by Karen Swallow Pryor, by David French, government money will provide for women who make up only 23% of the individuals who say that's why they had an abortion will solve the abortion issue that we will provide for their needs. In other words, social justice. These are people that we have somehow deprived and therefore the way we solve the problem is to throw money at it. Well, as you just pointed out, welfare state exists and one of the one of the uh, fallouts of that is that if you have Medicaid, the, you know, the rate of abortion is three times as high as any other uh, woman. So obviously handing out money hasn't solved the problem. Now, both Karen Pryor and David French both give kind of a token acknowledgement that the Christian church has in fact done a lot over, over the centuries. I mean, think about it. We've done adoptions, we've done foster care, we've done orphanages, we've done hospitals, we've done crisis pregnancy centers, we've done, you know, within our churches, we have helped people in need, and when the church can, it's helped outside in the community where it can. The Christian church ha- is leads the way in charity. Look at any statistical, you know, data with regard to who gives more than anyone else. It is going to be the Christian church. And I'm sorry, I, as, as one person tried to claim on my uh, on a tw- my Twitter feed, well, they're just apathetic. You know, there are a lot of professing Christians who are indeed apathetic. But the Christian church still, by and large, over any other entity, out you know, as outside the, the governments who throw money at everything, lead the way in charity. In fact, Christians give much more in charity than the liberal government entity uh, persons that use your money for charity. Okay, so let's just point that out. But they they kind of give token acknowledgement to that. But what are they basically saying? Even though the church has led the way on these things for years, a decades, centuries, it's not enough. It's not enough because the real reason that women are having abortions is. There's just not enough resources. There's just not hey, enough provided to them. Yes. It just dawned on me, and I'm sure most of our listeners probably already realize this, but the notion of the government providing food and clothing and shelter to those in need, guess where it originated from? Mm-hmm. The Bible they hate. Yes. The idea of caring for those in need is a command to the church. Now, interestingly, 
we heard Romans 13 uh, cited at us for two years about being obedient to the government. The funny thing about Romans 13 is it does not command the government to provide those things. It does command the church. It does command Christians to care for those in need. It doesn't command the, the government. Now, going back to this solution, and this is what I wrote up today, going back to this so-called solution, um, Rich just pointed out one of the major problems with that, and that is, is that government provision has often been a, a uh, an addictive and un, un oh, what's the word I'm looking for it doesn't flat help okay it, it, it traps people into welfare and I've seen this happen I know a lot of people who have seen this happen when the government gives you money you have to meet certain criteria the second you start to try to get a leg up on your own in other words you get a job benefits cut off not like they don't taper off, they cut off. I've watched that happen to a number of uh, people over the years. Oh, you're making so much money, you no longer qualify for any of it. It's all gone. So it creates a systemic problem where if you use the resources the government provides, if you want to continue to get assistance until you are able to do it yourself, you will never get there. You will be dependent on it. It will be this revolving door where you're just in and out, in and out, in and out, and you'll never be able to get out of it. And the welfare state is a real thing. It happens. Social and financial programs don't give people a leg up. They actually end up having to live on the meager handouts that the government government provides them, which Rich goes back to where we have heard of individuals who commit welfare fraud. And now that may not that may be the minority of people who do it, but it happens. Why? Because of how the system's set up. The government program never actually gives people a leg up. It's just a, a constant "give me more, give me more," because if I try to do it on my own, you're going to cut me off. So this these programs don't really help, and we see statistically that even government government provided insurance isn't a means of you know taking care you know a means of preventing an abortion because you're the numbers are three times as high as if, if when you have medicaid that a woman has an abortion why is all that why is the why is it when the government tries to provide it doesn't solve the problem well let's think about this for a second the government is supposedly the solution but what people like karen pryor and david french ignore is the government is also the problem what has the government done for decades? Well, let's start with sex education. Government-sponsored schools teach sex education. If you try to say, we need to teach abstinence, what are you told? They laugh at you. They have to teach safe sex practices because they're going to do it anyway. The government is already raising you know, the next generation of children to believe that they should be able to engage in sexually immoral acts with someone outside, uh, you know, that is not their spouse outside of marriage and that it, you just need to do it safely. What has the government also done? The government, what, what are we in month, this month right now, Rich? Oh, that's right, Pride Month. The government has force-fed a steady diet through uh, public education, through uh, uh government-sponsored programs, through the government even endorsing alternate sexual lifestyles as something to be celebrated. The government has force-fed a steady diet of sexual perversion and said it's a virtue. 
and has said that anyone who holds to the position that what the Bible says, that sex is to be between one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship called marriage, is practicing hate speech. The government is providing more and more reason for people to believe that the virtue and the, and the blessing is to be sexually irresponsible. This is saying that we should trust the very people who have helped our youth for generations to live in sexual infidelity, immorality, and perversion. They are the same people we are supposed to trust to solve the abortion problem? This is like saying, Mr. Hey, Mr. Domestic Abuser, You've beaten your wife thousands of times over the uh, course of your marriage. You are the best person to solve the abuse problem in your marriage. Have we lost our minds? Well, it's kind of like trying to, the government talking about physical responsibility, yet we still allow them to vote themselves massive raises each year. Exactly. A self-defeating argument. Exactly. Now, another interesting point, and I, I, I thought about this when I was reading, reading David French's article. David French kind of wanted to take another punch at, uh, at uh, Donald Trump in this one. So he cites statistics about, uh, about you know, abortion rates over the years. And the first thing he tries to point out is that, well, abortion was more common when it was mostly illegal. Huh, let's see, 1973 is when we... You know, we had the ruling for Roe v. Wade, which said, you know, abortion was a right. 1973, what was going on during that time? Oh, yeah, the hippie movement, drugs, love, all that. Uh, sexual revolution. Gee, I wonder why that could be as we went from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, as, as our emphasis, even in the government, was a pushing of sexual immorality. I can't imagine why abortion might have been more common when it was made, uh, when it was it was more common when it was mostly illegal. I'm sorry, I've said that backwards. Um, he said that the, according to the Guttmacher Institute that it was 16 abortions per thousand women when it was decided in 1973, soared to 29.3 per 1,000 women by the end of the Carter administration. And then 1981 began his long, slow, steady decline to an all-time low of 13.5 abortions per thousand women in 2017. So I apologize, I was saying that backwards. But... He was saying it was mostly common when it was illegal, but it started to slow down. Now, well, I want to comment on this. There's uh -huh. one thing that occurred that went worldwide in 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 that in that time frame, and I can't remember the exact year, but I'm thinking it was somewhere around 2012 when 180 movie came out mm -hmm. and it, it exploded, especially in this nation with the number of views it had. And it started to address the fact that that unborn baby was a life and was to be treasured. And Ray Comfort and his team at Living Waters started asking the question, when is it okay to kill a baby in the womb? Um, excuse me, but I really, truly believe that the decline in those numbers through 2010 through 2020 is attributed to 180movie.com and the awareness and the pulling back of the veil, so to speak, and the realization that this baby in the womb is actually a person. Um, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
at least in one state, every person that was in the state's Senate and the state's house was given a copy of 180 movie, including a particular governor all the way down to interns. A particular state capital received roughly 1,200 copies of 180 movie, and a couple of years after that outreach, that particular state started backtracking and started changing its view on abortion and started cracking down on abortion. Yeah. Um, could it be the fact that the gospel was being proclaimed and the truth was preached during that era and it had absolutely nothing to do with what the government itself was actually not doing? I, I think that's entirely possible, but there's a couple other things I want to point out. He talks about how the, the numbers go down. Well, let's go back to that uh, that uh, Abort 73 article. It, you know, in 2000, 1.3 uh, million abortions, 1.29 in 2002, 1. Point, uh, yeah, 1.21 in 05 and 08, 1.06 million in 2011, 926,000 in 2014, 862,000 2017. That's still really high. It's not like a massive, you're going from 1.3 to 862. Now that's less, but that's not a massive difference when you're considering how many hundreds of thousands of babies are dying every year. It goes up that's from that it goes up in 2017 for, to 2020 from 862 to 930,000. Now, there's one other thing that neither the Guttmacher Institute studies, not uh, neither uh, David French nor Karen Swallow Pryor reference in any of these articles abortifacients nobody is talking about abortifacients nobody's talking about the morning after pill nobody's talking about plan b nobody's talking about uh you know the contraceptives that prevent implantation see so many of these medications that we're doling out they don't stop uh, conception they stop implantation so you have a life it's just being flushed away. Well, brother, I don't think a lot of people understand the differences in the two, the difference between the contraceptive and what was it? Abortifacient. It's called an abortifacient. I don't think a lot of people. Exactly it. You're right. A, a lot of people don't. People hear you take a birth control pill and they think that stops pregnancy from happening. There are some that do. They, you know, Maybe you know affect things like ovulation. Uh, they they may affect uh, you know have some sort of impact before the sperm and the egg don't meet. But a lot of so-called birth control is about thinning the lining in the woman's uterus and not preventing conception. Ra meaning that you still have a sperm and an egg coming together and creating life. And what these abortifacients do is make it next very impossible, next to impossible for that life to adhere to the lining of the uterus, and therefore be flushed away. Those abortifacients are preventing implantation; they are not preventing conception. In other words, you're flushing a life down the drain, and that's what these a lot of these medications do. So while the gospel proclaimed through uh, uh, videos like 180, I'm sure it had a wonderful impact, 
Not one of these evangelical elitists are willing to acknowledge that maybe one of the reasons the numbers dropped is because they didn't have to go to the abortionist. They just popped a pill and killed the baby that way. Well, in their defense, they probably don't even know or realize, just like I asked you, they don't realize or know the difference between the two. They don't even realize or have not looked at drug data or pharmaceutical prescription data from these different drug companies on the increase of the prescribing amounts of the abortifacients versus contraception. And honestly, if somebody named two or three different medications to me, I wouldn't know the difference between one and the other. And here's my thing about that, Rich, though. Here's my thing. If you're going to argue that the church has failed in its duty, which is both both Karen Pryor and um, you know uh, David French are trying to basically say that we have to hand it over to the government, they say, "Oh, by all means, we we should be again, we should be willing to have it uh, be illegal." Oh, by all means, the church should be doing these things, but it's not enough. Then you better have a, a really good understanding if you want to cite statistics, David French. Then you better understand why those numbers dropped. David French just wants to say, well, see, the problem is it's more common when it's illegal, so it doesn't stop it. The problem is is you don't know why numbers dropped. You haven't cited it. You've actually determined it being legal made it less. And that has been a common argument of the left for years. Oh, look, the numbers are going down. It must be because of what we're doing. Is it? Have you determined that? Or are you simply ignoring data that is out there that you would have to look into to determine how many children have died because of things like the morning after pill, which you know exists. Everybody's heard of it. They may not know what it does, but they know it's out there. And the argument, and while many of us as Christians may not know about this and may not have done a lot of research, we know these things exist. And so before we start saying, being legal made it less, we better make sure we have our facts right. Because this is one argument, that is one argument I have yet to hear anybody like Karen Pryor or David French address. I'm sorry, brother, go ahead. To me, me, stating that abortions have declined because abortions are legal, that's stupid. There's no other way to put it. That's just a stupid statement. Um, That's like saying drug addiction has declined because we legalize marijuana. Yeah. I mean, the sad part is, and here's what David French says. He says, taken together, these two realities provide a guide for pro-life America's next moves. If banning abortion doesn't end abortion, then what will? Let me ask you a question, David French. Are you are you for murder laws? You know, saying you can't murder people. Would you would you say, um, well, since laws against murder don't stop murder, we shouldn't have them? No. No, you wouldn't say that. That's a foolish statement. So he says, then what will? The answer is deceptively simple in concept, yet extraordinarily difficult in practice. Our nation must ease the fears and concerns which are legitimate of women who are already predisposed to view abortion as a last resort, not a first choice. And he that's when, okay. he, re- that's when he refers to the Family Security Act. He wants... He predisposed wants to, to abortion? Predisposed to view abortion. Predisposed to... Well, hold on. What in the Pre- world predisposed to view abortion as a last resort. <laughs> in other words, he, he cites in here how many many people who were interviewed for or surveyed about having an abortion or what they thought about abortions, they, they saw it as, they shouldn't see it as, most people don't believe it is 
should be a first uh, first option. It's really the last resort. We need to ha think of all these other options. Interestingly, I, I challenge that if you ask the people who stand outside of these murder mills, the attitudes of the people going in, um, they know that they're committing murder and they don't. They want that baby gone. So I challenge him on that. But he, he's trying to say, well, we have to ease these women's fears because they don't really want to have abortions. It's a last resort, but they don't feel like they have another choice. And that's when he says we need to throw money at the problem. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the predisposed to abortions type well, pre commentary. And, predisposed and what, to what, see, he, what he's saying is they're predisposed to see abortion as a last resort. There are, there, in other words, their mindset is that they're already thinking it should always be a last resort. That's how, they're, how he's trying to phrase it. Well, I've, having been involved in some abortion ministry and many brothers and sisters in Christ that are actively involved in it, I think he's got it completely backwards. I agree. Those that lean towards abortion, that is their first and only thought and their only remedy because mm -hmm. ones that are going to the abortion clinics mean and hateful and know what they're doing is wrong, they know it. They know that it's murder. They just don't care. And this goes back to that victimhood mentality that these all these poor women having abortions, they're victims of this, they're victims mm -hmm. of that. It's not their fault. That's goes back to the entire survivorhood, victimhood mentality that they've promoted among sexual misconduct in the church and those and women that have suffered those sexual abuse in the church. They're just rolling over and applying it to the abortion issue because they believe the rhetoric put out by the left that, you know, all these abortions are the result of rape and incest, and we've got to take care of these women. When we've shown there's hard data from the seculars that, no, it's less than 1%, but they're trying to use that same argument and apply it to a whole, to the vast majority of women, uh, they're only going to get an abortion because they don't have any other choices. They don't have any op other options. But guess what? Before they ever engaged in sexual immorality, they had a choice. They had an option not to do it. Yes. The problem is they don't want to have to deal with the responsibility of their actions because we have two maybe three generations of individuals from the age 40 down who have been taught everyone gets a trophy you're entitled to this you're entitled to that you're entitled to free health care you're entitled to anything that makes you happy we have a half to three quarters of this country with this mentality that think that they should be able to do and get away with anything they want they want without any consequences to their actions being held to them. They're, they don't want to be responsible because they don't think they should be held responsible for their own actions. If you're engaging in sexual immorality, and actually even if you're a man and a woman married and you're engaging in sexual activity and you don't want to have a kid, first, if you're married and you don't want to have a kid, guess what? There are options. The husband can get a vasectomy. The woman can go and get her tubes tied. But that's also another point in this argument. These young women, say 24, 25 years old, that's never had a kid, that have made up their mind that they never want to have a child, doctors will not allow these women to have their tubes tied. Or in a lot of states, the only way they're allowed to have their tubes tied is their husband agrees to it. Mm -hmm. But a man can go out and get a vasectomy anytime he wants. Why is that double standard in place? If a woman knows that she never wants to have children, 
why will doctors refuse to allow her to have her tubes tied if that's the choice she wants to make? Yeah. That's, a, that's a discussion no one ever seems to bring up. True. There are options. There are choices. Yeah, and that's... And, and oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, abortion is never an option. Abortion is never a choice when it come, comes to the life of an unborn child. As the old saying goes, you paid the... You did the crime. Now it's paid. It's time to. I forget now. I completely butchered it. But <laughs> how's it go? Uh, you, you did the crime. Now do the time. I think basically. Yeah. And it, it, and all that's extremely true. And, and here's what it boils down to. It goes back to what Josh Dawes says. The, the regime evangelical, the the elitist, the big Eva, is going to appeal to the world. They want to say that you know they don't. They are very uncomfortable with the idea of banning abortion. And so what have they done? They've adopted the language that, well, banning abortion won't end it. Well, banning murder hasn't ended that either, but we recognize that life is precious and you hold people accountable for committing murder. That's why the law exists. The law can have a curbing effect, but the law will not stop a sinful heart bent on sin. It won't stop evil. That's true. So what do they say? Well, we sh even though... Banning, yeah, we can do that, and it's it, it, it's not a bad thing to have legal protections. Both prior and French say that. Um, it doesn't end it, so therefore we got to figure out why and what do they appeal to. They appeal to, well, because women feel afraid and they don't feel like they have the resources and we haven't provided enough for them and, the and things are unequal and unfair, we have to throw money at the problem. They're adopting the language of the left. I, I, I assure you, they are adopting the language of the left. And they are, even those statistics do not bear this out for them, they will still appeal to it because it is a much more kind, and I say that with air quotes, uh, presentation, rather than saying that 75% of, uh, uh, of abortions are elective and have little to do with rape, incest, life or, or of the uh, life of the mother or the child or financial reasons. The vast majority are elective because a woman doesn't want to have a baby and they're treating it as birth control. So they'll try to appeal to, oh look, the numbers went down. Yeah, not a whole lot. Um, and, and they won't ask the actual question why. They'll, they'll, they'll hint that it's because of social programs which doesn't have any substantive data to prove because we can actually look at the numbers that say, hey, when you have government insurance, you're actually having abortions at three times the uh, rate. So right, I have a question for you. Go, yeah, go ahead. All right. We've talked about all this, and we've talked about the upcoming elections in November. Why are so many within the evangelical regime, why are so many trying to take a middle ground stance when it comes to abortion why are they trying to adopt the language of the woke life movement the whole life movement and we covered mm -hmm. that issue in the previous episode we covered also how the big eva laid the foundation for biden to be elected in a previous episode so what are they setting up are they trying to stay friends with the world and mm -hmm. And trying to do the whole, well, we've got to make friends with this person that supports abortion so they'll maybe get an interest and maybe start coming to church. 
Are they doing it out of some type of friendship evangelism type method or, or view? Or are they trying to present themselves that the church is nice and we support your right to choose? What is the reason why they're taking this middle road stand on abortion? Why are they being jellyfish for abortion? I think it boils down to what you just said a little while ago. They're trying to make friends with the world. We, we've seen this, and uh, in, in, in I put an article out about it on the, on the website not long ago about this kind of this third-way mentality, this we want to be winsome, we want to be nuanced. Well, the reason is is that they, I believe that most, whether you call them Big Eva, regime evangelicals, whatever, um, I think the reason they want that is I think genuine biblical truth embarrasses them. Because if we stand firmly on the word of God and say, this is murder, you cannot do this, stop, you are sinning against God, that's embarrassing to them. Because the left, the worldly-minded person, is offended by that. And it sounds so Republican. It sounds so conservative, politically-minded. So they want to appeal to the, the, the world by saying, we understand your concerns. And it's that Tim Keller third-way mindset where we go, well, we don't want to appeal too much to the right or to the left, so we want to kind of be in the middle on these things, and we want to point out the, the, the problems on either side, which never actually happens. They never actually point out the problems on the left. They punch the right, and they coddle the left. And what they end up doing is, you know, they are embarrassed, I believe, people like Karen Pryor and David French are embarrassed by Christians who stand firmly and say, we should not have laws that allow for the murder of children in the womb. We should ban that. And because basically, it doesn't sound nice. Basically, the same approach Rick Warren takes with exactly. Muslims, they're taking with the abortion crowd. We've got to make friends for them. We've got to, we've got to win our, we've got to make, let me, let me start that over. We have to make friends with those that oppose Christ in order to earn the right to share the gospel with them. So maybe they'll take an interest in church, yes. and maybe they'll be start studying the Bible, and maybe they'll start studying about Christ. So maybe eventually, one day, they'll become saved. That is the gist of the modern evangelical way of doing evangelism. That is the way Rick Warren presents the gospel to Muslims. Exactly. He tries to find common grounds to build a bridge so Christ can cross over that bridge and enter their hearts. And we will cover that more down the road, but in the, in the, in the condensed version, I think basically that's what they're trying to do. It's either they're trying to not be offensive and not try to, quote-unquote, drive people farther away from Christ, because, well, first off, if you're not truly saved, you couldn't be farther away from Christ than you already are, mm -hmm. regardless of how interested you might be you're still not saved and i think part of it is that statistic from earlier about 30 percent of people that had abortions in that year were protestant i think that number is higher now so they don't want to offend these church members that support abortion because guess what if they're offended they won't be filling that donation plate any longer i still think a lot of this comes right back down to that old green-eyed bug when it comes to money and they're afraid of losing their status and their wealth versus just like the the Sanhedrin they were scared of losing their prominence in Jerusalem because they were scared the Romans would come and take it away from them mm -hmm. same truth still applies today they're scared that the world's going to come in 
and condemn them and speak out against them and their book sales or their conference tours or their speaking engagements or their writing for New York Times, those type of opportunities will go away. And that's truly what they're more afraid of. They're not afraid of offending Christ. They're afraid of offending the culture and society and man. And I honestly think that's really what the issue comes down to. But what I see happening is, and I agree with you in that podcast, that we're seeing them start to set up a pathway for professing Christians to vote for Democrats mm-hmm. come this November, because the rhetoric's going to be, well, we need to vote for Democrats because they're the only ones really, truly caring about these women that have no choice, that only thing that they can do is go have an abortion. We've got to support these Democrats because they have all these financial solutions to provide for these women so they don't have to have an abortion. And that's, that's the way exa- I see it. And that's exactly it. And the sad truth is, is that they they really hate the idea that I mean, these are the same type of people that say, "Hey, we need to have uh, social justice. We need to have critical race theory. We need to look at sy- these systemic problems." And they adopt the language of the culture because they think that appeals to the culture more. And they really eschew the idea of looking to scripture to solve these solutions. They would rather import worldly ideologies into the uh, into our belief system and then try to find a way to make scripture fit that. And that's what you see happening in these articles by Karen Pryor and David French is they're trying to appeal to the Christian who is commanded to to love his neighbor, to to help those in need, but they're adopting worldly arguments that really, when you looked at them, you know the the statistics that we looked at just at the beginning of the show, don't bear out what they're saying, and the, and the solutions don't bear out what they're saying, and ultimately what they are coming their solution is, hey, let's trust the government, which has helped set the stage for making abortion, I don't know the solution. Let's let them solve the problem, which they will never do because they are the abuser and we're asking the abuser to find a way to stop the abuse. That's not going to happen. So what it boils down to is we've got to reject this kind of ideology. The reason we did this episode, and and, and look, I don't have any personal animosity toward Karen Pryor or David French. I don't like what they're doing. I don't respect them because what they're doing is is destructive to the Christian church. I don't respect what they're saying because it is mis, uh, it is a misrepresentation of the truth and they're doing it for political reasons. They're doing it for worldly reasons to please those that uh, that, that they want to talk to and they feel are worth uh, you know sharing the gospel with, but they want to punch down those of us who say what you're doing is wrong. And so the, the, the final solution in this, and it's what Rich, what you said earlier, is it comes down to this. The church has always stepped up. The church has always provided for those in need, and we should continue to do so. And and I will say that there are, you know, every church, there's always an argument that like 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. Folks in the churches, we need to be better than that. Now, some churches have people involved in all kinds of levels, and I think that's fantastic. But if you're involved in, if you're part of a church, be involved in it. Find a way to serve. Find a way to help. 
Don't be a pew warmer. Be engaged. And if you can help people in need, if the Lord has provided for you in such a way that you can do that, then step up and do it. And if that means giving a little bit more out of your paycheck to, let's say, your church sponsors a crisis pregnancy center, then do it. If you can serve in that capacity, maybe you can't put money, but you can put time. Do that. If you can adopt, if you can foster uh, you know, uh, children, if you can do any of those things, then get involved. If you can be a part of your church's ministry that is outside abortion clinic, clinics, preaching the gospel and begging women not to murder their children, be a part of it. And if you can't do any of those things, be a prayer warrior, be involved in you know, praying, uh, uh, excuse me, praying fervently, is trying to say fervently, for the people involved in these ministries. Find a way to be involved. But we don't, we don't need to be pew warmers. Let's be engaged and let's be doing things. But guess what? The church has always done that. And we're going to continue to do that. And we don't need the government to do the job for us. There are people saying, well, there's too many people who are apathetic, but the government can do a better job. The government can't do a better job. The government got us in this mess. We, we do these things because we're, we're, we're slaves to our sin. We commit murder in the womb because we're slaves to our sin. By the way, if you're a man who thinks that a woman should get, a, you know, get an abortion so you don't have to be responsible for a child, shame on you. You're a coward. You're a child. Repent. I'm going to tell you that right now. If you, and by the way, you ladies who say, well, then we want to withhold sex from men because they need to be held responsible. Guess what? Your terms are acceptable. We agree with you. Um, but step up and be responsible. But how do we deal with that issue? You know, yes, the government is setting, you know, setting the stage. The government has helped push you know, slaves of sin in this direction. But how do we stop that? Well, it's certainly not by trusting the government to do, do a better job. But it is by preaching the gospel. What it boils down to is you want to see hearts bent on sin. Stop being bent on sin. Preach to them Christ crucified. We're not going to see people stop wanting to have abortions if we don't see them changed by Christ. Now let me just say this. If you've had an abortion despite what some other religious people will say to you, including one who tried to tell this to me earlier this week. Abortion, as vile and tragic and horrible as it is, is not the unforgivable sin. If you've committed abortion, your Savior stands before you, ready to receive you. If you will repent, confess what you've done is evil, repent and turn to Christ who has died for your sins and trust in his completed work, guess what? You are no longer a person standing in judgment. You are a person standing in the family of Christ. Turn from this sin. Turn from the vile hatred in your heart against the unborn. And turn to Christ who will receive you and give you his righteousness. The gospel is for the abortionist. The gospel is for the abortion-minded. The gospel is for the sexually immoral. The gospel is for the person who thinks government can solve the problems. The gospel is for the sinner. And it is only the gospel and the power of the gospel that changes wicked hearts enslaved to sin. Christians, this is our primary mission. We cannot forget this. The gospel is why we help people, because we who don't deserve the grace of God have received it, and we have been blessed by him, and so we then in turn seek to bless others. We are the worst of sinners, and yet we care for other sinners. 
because we demonstrate the love of God who showed his love to us first. That is what moves the church to serve, to help, to save, to rescue, and to provide for. It is the gospel. Pastor, you want to see your church care for the unborn? Preach to them the gospel. Preach to them the wickedness of their hearts has been you know, has been forgiven. They are new creations and they have been made fit for his use, for good works that he has prepared beforehand that he will be glorified for. Preach them the gospel, the, you know, the, the magnificent, magnificent supernatural gospel that changes them and makes them something new. And then equip them to go serve and equip them to preach the gospel to others. Church, you want to see women who are standing on the streets screaming, my body, my choice, with wicked, vile uh, looks in their eyes, who are screaming abortion on demand without apology right now as they are uh, standing in front of uh, churches and standing in front of government buildings, standing on street corners screaming in rage about the possibility of not being able to murder their children, you want to see that change, you preach the gospel to them because they desperately need it. This vile hatred for the children in the womb, it comes from sin, a sinful heart that needs Christ desperately. We don't need answers from Karen Pryor and David French and every other elitist evangelical who says we've got to appeal to the world by the world's means. We don't necessarily have to appeal to the, the you know, political right either, by the way, because a lot of people on the right have zero compassion or love. <laughs> Sometimes there are those of us on the right that are just downright mean and harsh, <laughs> but we appeal through Christ and we stand on the truth and we say abortion is murder in the womb and you will stand before God on judgment day and whether it's legal illegal banned or not whether it's a whether you're going to stand before a judge in this life for doing it or whether you're applauded as a hero you will stand before God on judgment day that's that's how you make a difference we don't preach the gospel to end abortion but when we preach the gospel guess what happens Societies bent on sinful, paganistic, secular, humanistic, atheistic, gobbledygook sin begin to become changed. It's not about government handouts. They don't solve a problem. They're part of the problem. It's about the gospel message that redeems sinners and equips churches to serve and to help, to adopt, to aid, to foster, to create hospitals and charities and crisis pregnancy centers, all because of the gospel. There is no gospel in a government solution, none. It's just kicking the can down the road. Reject that ideology, it serves no purpose. You don't solve problems by taking the resources of one family and giving it to somebody else to whom it does not belong. But if you, as a servant of Christ, preach the gospel to those people and where the Lord has equipped you, aid them where, they, where you can, 
That's where the difference is made. That's what we need to, to, to long for. Stop this winsome, nuanced nonsense that we're, we're going to coddle the, the people on the left and make them feel better about themselves. That's just, that's just seeker-friendlyism repackaged. It's not biblical. We need to reject that ideology. We need to preach the gospel to people like Karen Pryor and, and David French. And I'm sure they'd hate hearing that, <laughs> but they, they need it because I think they've lost sight of it. I won't, I won't declare whether they're saved or not. I know some people would say uh, one way or the other. It's not, not my, I'm not going to get into that argument. But they, they need to hear that gospel again because they've lost sight of it. Brother, anything else? We've had these folks for nearly two hours. We should probably let them get back to their days. Anything else before we let well, everybody go? I would like to remind our listeners, and if anyone that actually listens to our program can speak this to David French or Karen Pryor, remind them from the book of Acts, it states that this Jesus, God has made both, both, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a Savior without submitting to him as Lord. That, that statement, that comment, that truth in Scripture is forgotten among professing Christians today. Christ was not Jesus' last name. It's a title. The Christ, the Savior. God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Savior, and you have to submit to him in thought, word, and deed. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My question is, are you loving Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it reflected in all that you think, in all the ways that you act, in all that you do? Do you love the Word of God? Do you disagree with the Word of God here, there, and this point, and you think, well, this verse doesn't apply to me. Guess what? You're outside of Christ. If you think that you have the authority to pick and choose what you will and will not obey when it comes to the Word of God, when you think that you can pick and choose how you will represent Jesus, who is Lord and Christ, God has as much to say about how we worship him as much as what we are to worship about him. Amen. Everything goes hand in hand. You can't adopt the doctrine of demons and use that to try to bring people to Christ, meaning you cannot adopt the philosophies of the world and try to use that as an enticement to bring them to Christ. You cannot use the temple of Artemis to bring them to a synagogue in Corinth or Ephesus. I, I'm getting a little bit off track, but <laughs> you can't have it your way and his way because Christ demands everything be his way. And guess what? He is the author of life, and he is the only one that has the authority to say my way. But in closing, I want to share a small brief comment from J.C. Ryle. The true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it 
his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. The true Christian never makes excuses for his or her sin and never makes excuses for the sin of others. The true Christian never tries to coddle someone in sin and affirm their sin and make them feel better about living in sin. The true Christian obeys Christ and proclaims his biblical way of salvation. He doesn't invite people to try out Christ. The Word of God is explicitly clear. He commands, repent and believe, surrender your life in every aspect, surrender your life and take up the cross and follow Christ. That means every thought, word, and deed has has got to be taken captive by Christ, and you submit to him out of love and gratitude for saving you from the consequences of your own sin and saving you from the consequences of your own heart. Christ doesn't save you from hell. Christ saves you from yourself and your own love of sin. So as you go forth this week, make it a point to proclaim the biblical way of salvation to at least one person each day. Amen. Amen, brother. Folks, heavy topic always is on this issue. Uh, We address this not so that we could do smackdowns on Karen Pryor and David French. Sometimes they make it easy, but that's, that's not what we're trying to do. The truth is, over the coming months, and I believe Josh Dawes is absolutely correct, this is going to be the argument. Um, Just like you have evangelicals who say, hey, we should be totally for, you know, having gun control, because look what happened in Texas, you're going to have, you know, evangelical leaders who say, we need to vote for people who will make abortion unnecessary and unthinkable. It's already unnecessary and unthinkable. Um, We need to vote for these people. And so you're going to be confronted with these arguments. There was a lot of information shared here. Uh, we're going to put a lot of this in the show links. Uh, encourage you to check them out. I would encourage you maybe to go back and re-listen to some of the things we talked about. You're going to have to do some research on your own. Make sure you're, you know, listening to a podcast is very helpful and very informative. But you need to start doing some research and learning. Look at what they say. Look at what history has shown. Look at the statistics. And then more than anything, look to Scripture. In fact, make Scripture your first place you go. Be informed biblically before you go into these things. Be prepared for these arguments because you're going to face them. The reason we talked about the 2020 election and how evangelical leaders paved the way for what we now have was because they were the ones that told Christians it's okay to vote for Democrat. There were people who said that. And they're going to do it in in this year. 2022 is going to happen again. We're already seeing the argument is, well, we have to be supportive of government programs. The Christian church is just not doing enough. And and we're we're terrible people for expecting the law to stop them from having having abortions. It's not going to work. So we did the program because while it, it did kind of fit in especially with the with what happened this week and we didn't we weren't able to get to the topic we wanted to do um 
believe me, this wasn't thrust together at the last second. We were, we've been looking at this kind of stuff. That's why I wrote the things that I wrote in the last couple of days. We want to help equip our brethren to think biblically. Now, you don't have to agree with us on every factor. Totally fine with that. But agree with what Scripture says. Don't be led astray by people who have demonstrated they have a desire to appease the world. These arguments are unbiblical. And they are giving the keys back to the very people who have damaged the kingdom to begin with. We, it's basically like we've said, here, invading army, you've come in and destroyed the city. We've kicked you out for maybe half a second, but let me give you the keys because we want you to come in and rebuild. Really bad idea. Really bad idea. So hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully this has caused you to think more on this issue. That's what we always hope we can manage to do. It's been a long episode, I know. Um, we, Andrew, I think, has teased us and said we're getting closer to uh, just thinking time <laughs> lengths. And we're nowhere near what they do, but uh, hopefully we've done something in this two hours that's helped you think on this issue more clearly because you're going to be challenged over the next several months with these arguments. So again, thank you for your time. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for sharing this program. Thank you for the support that you provide to us. Uh, thank you for your prayers and the kind comments you, you guys so often share with us. And uh, to the one who responded to us on to me online last week uh, from the SBC one, hey, I don't agree with the things that you said, but you were kind, you were direct, and you you engaged the things we said on the episode. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, we look forward to spending time with you next week. Hopefully we'll get into that other topic and uh, get into some more important stuff. So thank you folks for spending this time. God bless you. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.